the local community of today is swallowed up in a process of centralization. Its activities and institutions are more and more controlled by powerful organizations whose decisions are so vital to the welfare of the community that its citizens often feel their power to govern their own affairs is gone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast, a CastBox original show. I'm Austin Knight, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Matthew Hells-Barbie. Hey, Austin, and hello to all our listeners. So it's continued to be, uh, how do I put it, tough few weeks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Understatement. Maybe even worse than that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the crypto space has been, uh, it's been difficult with uh, prices of most major cryptocurrencies sitting at like 2018 low points right now. Yeah, in particular with a lot of the altcoins, uh, that is cryptocurrencies that aren't Bitcoin, uh, they have really dropped down in price. I think Ethereum, when we were talking about, I think an episode that we we recorded in January of 2018, we were, we were saying about Ethereum's price rise and it was sitting at just over $1,300 at the time. And now it's bouncing below $300. Yeah. I remember uh, when we were recording that episode, we were sort of speculating on how high the price of Ethereum could actually go. And I don't know, at least in recording, we didn't predict that it would be where it is now. But uh, at the same time, I think we all kind of had it in the back of our minds that uh, there was a certain level of inflation happening with the media hype and the holidays and people buying for family. But at any rate... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we were off. <laughs> yeah, my, my my prediction would have been way off. And that is a reason why we don't make price predictions uh, on the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. And we actually shared out an article in our email newsletter from Yahoo that was discussing how the recent dip in crypto prices has actually sparked suicide concerns. So yeah. it's, uh, it's you know, I think that the advice that we gave in our, our first series was really like only invest what you can 100% afford to lose. And so for us, we've kind of been sitting here watching it and not worrying too much, but mm -hmm. you tend to forget, you know, this is real money it that really people is. are dealing with. And it, and it's, and it really is some 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 quite serious stuff and i've seen a few articles around this and i think that as you alluded to a lot of people got swept up in the hype of late 2017 i i remember kind of people talking about those thanksgiving dinners where their, yeah. their uncle and their grandfather is now invested in cryptocurrency for the first time and those are the people that are probably kind of getting quite worried now especially those that are not necessarily as understanding of the technology, but the thing I would just want to reiterate based on what, what some of the things you were talking about there as well, Austin, is like, this is a very volatile market. Not only that, but we are at such an early stage of this technology's development. I, I actually read a recent article that around 80%, 80% of all of the so-called major cryptocurrencies don't even have a live functioning product yet. 
Wow, man. I mean, that that actually, unfortunately, sort of brings us back to that meme of a conversation that was happening around, you know, what what is what defines a currency? What backs the cryptocurrency? It's tough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy. Uh, and and when you when you consider that, right? It's actually no wonder that there's so much volatility going on. You've got new releases happening, people speculating on ideas that. To be completely honest, Austin, even for me and you who have been observing the space for quite a while now and have spoken to people involved in projects, it's actually really difficult for even us to understand whether something is even technically possible and how well it's going to be executed on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like one news article will come out, right? And then the price of a crypto will either shoot up to the moon or like plunges down dramatically. And... I think one of the things, again, that I will also call out here is like neither myself nor Austin are here to give investment advice to you. But the thing that we will say, and I'm going to echo what you you mentioned there, Austin, is only invest what you can physically afford to lose. That's, that's about as far as I would go with any form of investment advice here. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that there's already been a number of horror stories of people doing things like taking out loans that they can't afford just to buy cryptocurrencies and they want to, you know, not miss out on the huge profits that they think they're going to make. I even read uh, several months ago a story about a family that quit their jobs and sold their home and all of their assets and put it all into Bitcoin. And I can't imagine how they're they're feeling right now. It's It's tough when you realize that this is not for everyone. Is this just a technology that people are tinkering with and, and trying out, but people made real life altering decisions based on this. And so when that graph changes, uh, consider the, the impact that, yeah. that it could have on you. And, and if it feels like it could be too extreme, don't go for it. You know, that's not the way to approach any investment. Yeah, please, please don't sell your house. Uh, like you, <laughs> you need a roof. Is that fair advice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean... I, I just, I really, I mean, let, let's let say that the crypto dream that a lot of people in the space wants to happen in the next five years happens, right? And that person that sold the whole family's house, they sold it and they quit their jobs and they, they pushed all of their funds into Bitcoin and they, let, let's say they 10X'd their, their money in 10 years. Is it worth it? Like for, for me, I'm like yeah. the, the stress, the potential mm -hmm. risk on your family, your livelihood, your mental health, it, the, the toll that that must take. I, I mean, I'm not here to question the life decisions of people because I know that I've made wonderful decisions in the past uh, myself, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I certainly haven't contemplated selling everything I own and throwing it into Bitcoin. That's one thing that I can absolutely say I have not done. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's easy to understand how people got themselves into these situations. So yeah, uh, I think that the, the, the message stands, you know, this is an interesting space principally for the technology and the implications that it could have on the future. And that's why we've always wanted to focus on that. But viewing it purely as an investment vehicle or, or a way to flip some money overnight, that, that can really get you into some deep trouble. Yeah, it's trying to rationalize within an ultimately completely irrational market. It's incredibly <laughs> difficult to do. But one thing, one thing I would say is 
if you have an investment in this space, if you don't, but you are very interested in following and staying up to date with what is actually happening in the space, it's probably a good time to actually mention our completely free weekly newsletter that we send out. It's in in my very biased opinion, probably one of the easiest and simplest <laughs> ways to actually stay up to date with nearly all of the news headlines. These This isn't just some weird ploy for us to send you to our website. We, we, we just simply share news articles from publications that we trust around the latest news that's going on. So if you actually are interested in having a quick summary of all of the latest blockchain-based news sent straight to your inbox every single Monday, you can subscribe for free by going to thecoinoffering.com forward slash crypto dash news. So just once again, that's thecoinoffering.com forward slash crypto dash news. Yeah. And as a reminder, we don't share your data with anyone else, nor do we ever include ads in our emails. Doom and gloom to one side. We actually have a great guest coming on the podcast today. We mentioned in one of our previous episodes that we were going to dive into explaining the complex and somewhat, well, actually very interesting ideas around decentralized exchanges. And that is exactly what we're going to do today. Yeah, we're speaking today with David Blesnack, the CEO of Total and a self-professed decentralized exchange expert, which I think he actually lives up to. Yeah, I, I think so. Some some Austin may call him a Dex spurt. <laughs> wow, the crowd really loved that one, right? <laughs> well, without further ado, let's bring in the Dexpert himself. David, welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's so great to have you here. We'd love to start out with just hearing your own personal story and how you first got involved in the blockchain space. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for uh, having me on. I got involved in uh, 2013 uh, in Bitcoin really out of curiosity for technology and this specifically this technology blockchain. I have friends who are constantly researching this type of stuff. And the first use case was the dark web. And so there were anything you think of that you wanted to order, you could order through uh, Silk Road. And that, that, that opened a lot of people's eyes to this space. So you were hiring hitmen on Silk Road, and that's how you you came about into the blockchain space. Can we quote you on that, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> not quite. Um, it was it was interesting to um, to be a part of that time though, and to see what people were using it for, and to really understand the implications of how blockchain technology will will interrupt or disrupt government organizations and their their involvement in in people's lives and how that meshes with the internet. That's awesome. So could you tell us a little bit about the project that you're working on now called Total? What What is that and, and how did it come to fruition? Yeah. So there was a big lull in my, I guess my, I don't want to say my interest, but my participation in the space following Mt. Gox along with many other people. So Coming up through 2015, when Ethereum really started formulating and getting legs there, that was really when I think a lot of people returned in interest who have found recent success uh, in this space due to the ICO boom uh, of last year of 17 and the emergence of decentralized applications 
and this whole ecosystem that, that's growing. So my involvement really, I guess, again, in terms of participation in, at a heavy level was was uh, the turn of 16 to 17 when I started investing uh, my own personal money as well as some of my friends and family's money into ICOs and through my own due diligence processes and investing and portfolio management in terms of allocations into different coins and, and, and opportunities. I just realized how difficult it was to manage crypto assets, and that really led to total. So the problem we're approaching here is, you know, this administration of crypto assets. So the question is, how can we empower people to manage the crypto assets they have in their possession? So th that that's key because, you know, you look at things like uh, Coinbase, which obviously does great, great work for the, for the space and the industry in, in general um, in terms of gaining exposure and gaining users to crypto. However, they needed to take a, I don't want to say a shortcut, but they, they, they needed to reformulate the crypto concept for people into not crypto. So they, they in, in practice, became a crypto bank and exchange, a centralized one, which is fine. That's a way for people to you know, interact with crypto and become familiar with it, even onboard from fiat. But the inherent benefit of the technology allows users, allows individuals to keep possession of their assets. And so they need to do that using software or hardware wallets, keeping possession of their private keys on their local devices, and then interacting with these blockchains and decentralized applications through something like Total, where it's a nice, clean user interface, and we've, we've hit all of the protocol level functions for them. Right. And you talked a little bit there about Coinbase and myself and Austin, especially in our first series where we laid out some of the fundamentals, we talked a lot about storing cryptocurrency and the fact that when you have cryptocurrency that you're storing or at least interfacing in the blockchain via a hardware wallet, paper wallet, you are now responsible for that. And very different from the current banking system or the more traditional fiat banking system where the bank owns your money. And you mentioned that Coinbase is kind of when you have your cryptocurrency in in Coinbase, it's pretty much just like a bank in that respect, that they they are responsible for that and they are centralized. And one of the topics that we really want to dig in with you is around decentralized exchanges. And I know that that's an area that you know a lot about. And I wonder if for our listeners, you could just delineate what is a decentralized exchange and how does it differ from a centralized exchange like... Coinbase, Kraken, Binance, et cetera. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, you hit it on the head there with how Coinbase operates as a, as a central authority, really as a replication of the traditional banking system. Um, the key is that they're a custodian, so they keep possession of your assets for you. They're the ones with the private key to the crypto assets. You actually don't have that. They're just telling you um, when you have one Bitcoin in your account, that they're, they're just telling you that and that you have to trust them, um, that when you want to access that, you need their permission. So for decentralized exchanges, it's a bit different. You trade directly from your possession. So if you think about a centralized exchange, the steps that you have to go through help define the difference. So if you have to go to a centralized exchange, you have to create an account, you have to deposit funds, that's key. And then after depositing those funds, then you can freely trade. And then you the, the centralized exchange keeps track of the balance for you that you have left, and then you withdraw the funds. So on a decentralized exchange, there's no deposits or withdrawals, which, I mean, it saves in fees, but more importantly, it's it's more secure. There's no honeypot of funds. 
Mm. You know, there's no central system where all these funds are deposited to where some hacker or some authority can come and take them. In a decentralized exchange, you may be using similar systems to find a counterparty, find someone to trade with. But the settlement, the actual trade occurs directly from one person to another person without going through a centralized system that has to ever take possession of the assets. Right. Okay. So why for for anyone listening that either owns cryptocurrency or is interested in owning cryptocurrency, why should anyone care about decentralized exchanges? Why is there the major advantage just simply being that it's security wise? And do you think people even care that much at this exchange? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a few reasons, you know, all of these assets that people are trading represent either access to a decentralized network, or represent, you know, on some extreme ends, shares or, you know, an equity stake in a in a decentralized organization, whether that's in contractually or in voting rights or other. So at the end of the day, we're trading all of these assets that are that power decentralized networks and decentralized systems. Why would we use a centralized exchange in order to administrate those markets? Um, that's the number one thing. Number two, it, it goes really back to decentralization in general, not just for exchange. I mean, decentralization, the value that it adds, it, it, it's not necessarily in the fact that one's more efficient than the other or anything like that. But decentralized exchanges allow for individuals to keep possession of their assets and and not need to trust uh, an intermediary or a third party. So you see the issues arising from centralized exchanges like Binance or um, you see with Bitfinex or a few others that have gone through hacks where the funds have been lost in that process. In a decentralized exchange, because there's no central system controlling a mass of funds, there's there's no point of attack for hackers. They would have to hack every single person who's participating in the market individually, which would be very uneconomic for the individual. Yeah. I think it's worth noting for our listeners that were around for series one, we lightly touched on the topic of hacks that had purportedly occurred with Bitcoin, or at least were reported as such in the media. It's like, you know, a Bitcoin hack or something to that effect, and how those were largely happening in centralized exchanges. So I think that that sort of comes back to the point that you were making about the security of this, right, is not creating that honeypot, which I imagine is something that you all are are certainly thinking about. At the same time, another thing that we touched on a, a lot was uh, just the sheer difficulty that there is involved in buying and storing and, and transferring cryptocurrency. And I think that for a, a lot of new users, that's why they choose a centralized exchange is because it makes it so easy. I imagine that's also something you're thinking about at Total, but it makes me curious if uh, you feel there might be like a middle ground between being a fully decentralized exchange and fully centralized, something where you could like eliminate some of the the difficulties that come with a decentralized exchange while not compromising on security too much, maybe a hybrid solution. Is that possible? Yeah. So you're seeing a little bit of that already. There's solutions like IDEX, even DDEX and Coinbase bought Paradex, Dextop, which is out of uh, Asia, Singapore region, I believe. So all of these solutions I'm describing to you are, are what we would call hybrid solutions. 
And what that means is that they're blockchain-y, but they're not decentralized. And so what I mean by that is they're posting all of the settlement of the trades to the blockchain so that everyone can go see them. However, the process of submitting a request to trade and matching with another individual is all done centralized through the servers of these parties. So only these parties that I mentioned, these venues like Paradax or DDAX or IDAX, they're the only ones who can execute their contract. So people are, again, depositing funds and asking permission from the central authority to execute their trade. And when they get permission, though all this is done, you know, automatically via servers and computers, it's still the concept still holds true that they once they request the trade, then they're given permission and they're matched up with a counterparty within the system. And it's submitted to the smart contract directly from the centralized entity. So there are benefits to this. It's not what we believe in it total necessarily. We, we believe in a little more decentralization than that. In the centralized order matching to us, it creates or leaves the similar issues that were there when we kind of started this process towards decentralized exchanges. But there are benefits. There are benefits because there's transparency. You're you're posting to a public ledger, but it doesn't combat the issue of fairness. The, the central authority is still the one who's making the decision on who gets matched with who, in what order, and at what time. So you you still don't have that ability to to influence that that process. You you are at the peril or at the the whim of the of the centralized authority. So. The answer is yes, there are hybrid systems, but the conclusion for Total is that that's not the goal for us. The goal is much more of a decentralized uh, solution. So if we're going with a decentralized exchange then, what would you imagine could be some of like the, the adoption hurdles that the average consumer would think of? Like if I were doing a cost benefit analysis when I, I start exchanging crypto with the cost being like my time and potential sanity of working with a centralized <laughs> exchange versus a decentralized exchange. What's some of the the pros and cons that I would take into consideration? Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a big part of uh, what we're doing at Total. You know, we built our product UX first. So that's user experience first. And then we built down to the protocols, down to what needs to happen in order for the experience to work the way we built it. So the reason that that's important is exactly for what you're talking about. Because it's such a headache, because it's such a cumbersome process of trading crypto assets, that there needs to be a total for individuals to more easily access the decentralized exchange space. And that's exactly what our business is. But in terms of just explaining to someone who's new to the space, I would say that the you know the the trade-offs there or the commitment is greater when studying decentralized exchanges. Anything new to someone has a barrier of time, and in my opinion, time is money. So it it, it all costs something. So the education or educating yourself on these things can be very powerful, though, and uh, the benefits of decentralized exchange outweigh the the negatives for. A majority of the individuals who are attracted to this industry. So you have the players in the traditional finance world, your Goldman Sachs, your investment banks, JP Morgan, all these groups, they would not like this architecture or this concept of decentralized exchanges taking hold because they have the upper hand in the current system. 
right? So them having the ability to do high frequency trading or borrow at basically 0% from other institutions, that gives them the advantage in the current model. When you have a model that can that any individual, whether they have $100 or $100 million, can participate at the same level fairly uh, in a completely decentralized international market, uh, you're not going to get the head nod from the guys who have you know all the power currently. So I don't know if that uh, I kind of went off uh, a little bit on that, but I, my 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 point is that from your question about onboarding to these different tools, educating yourself in order to use a decentralized exchange, which we're, we're lowering by producing total, there's still a, a need to educate yourself as an individual on why decentralization is important. And for that reason, I would say it, it, it's worth the time. Would you say that you have to have slightly more technical knowledge to use a decentralized exchange versus a centralized and the reason i ask that is myself and austin i mean austin's background is in design and ux and we talk a lot about that when it comes to the crypto space because i think coinbase did a fantastic job initially yep. in really breaking the market and just simplifying yep. things down you could buy three cryptocurrencies and it works just like any other site like paypal or anything right it was just super simple yep. can that same kind of user experience be delivered via a decentralized exchange or is there just a, a few more technical barriers that need to be broken down first yeah i think that it can be so the the short answer is yes it can be that simple what's going on right now in the space is a is a huge development infrastructure development so what's happening right now is there needs to be the, so you have players in other markets that make other very, very complex systems seem very easy because it's their economic incentive. What, what do I mean by that? Take Apple, for example. Apple gives you this phone, and the amount of things that you can do on your phone, whether it's sending email or creating documents, all this stuff, it's very complicated stuff from a technical perspective. They've just made it easy for you. I mean, no one knows how an, actually an email goes from me to you. Uh, if I send you an email right now, could you tell me technically how that works? Probably not. There's a big, massive hamster that runs on a giant wheel, right? I think that's how <laughs> exactly. the, the, the whole thing. That's the internet, actually, I think, it, not email. It, yeah. Exactly. That's <laughs> that's exactly right. And so this hamster can only handle so much. Um, <laughs> no, actually, my point was, I don't know where I was going now. My point is they, they, they've made this, this, this hamster, they've hidden this hamster. So you don't really need to really understand all of that stuff in order to just participate, right? Be a user. And that's going on in crypto right now. It just takes a lot of time. And there's also a lot of, I don't want to say strife, but a, there's, a, there's a struggle going on in, in, within the crypto community on what is, what's the best way. And the best way isn't always, you know, what is best even? Is that the best for everyone? Is that the best for certain centralized authorities? Is that the best for retail users, big money, you know, wealth managers, or are we even taking into account institutions? Are we completely just not even thinking about them? And there's the, the infrastructure for this space is so complex and it's being built today that it's not. It's very hard for overnight for what you're talking about to take place. Apple very well could, uh, as well as Facebook and Google and some of these other groups, which I'm sure they will, when they figure out how they can benefit economically the most, squeeze the most value out of these buzzwords and out of these assets, They'll implement easy to use 
applications on top of these protocols that are being invented today. You know, if Apple comes out the iPhone 11 and it has a, a crypto asset wallet built into the wallet application, which they already have, you could imagine how much easier it would become for everyone to use some decentralized exchanges. I think it's a matter of time before we start to see that happen, whether it be via Apple, whether it be via Android. I mean, we're already seeing Facebook doubling down, shifting around some high profile personnel to focus on blockchain. A lot of these big companies often sit on the sidelines, wait for to learn from the mistakes of many of the early adopters and then swoop in. So that that would not surprise me in the slightest. But one thing that I, I'd love to tap into some of your knowledge around, actually, that I'm not so familiar with is understanding how things like customer support and dispute resolution and things like that work within centralized exchanges for and and just to clarify for both yourself and the listener what i actually mean by that is if i'm using kraken or coinbase or any other centralized exchange and i deposit some funds in my account and those funds disappear i can usually speak to the customer support via live chat, maybe even a phone number, and they'll be able to support on a lot of this stuff. With a decentralized exchange where you're not necessarily in control of all of these different things, how how does that happen? Is there going to be customer support? And how does that happen on things like Total and other decentralized exchange right now? Yeah, this is a really hard concept for people to grasp who are not, maybe maybe not so involved every day with with these decentralized applications. But at the end of the day, there, there's a separation, a fundamental separation that's going on between possession of assets and services, okay? You have something like your bank you go to today, Bank of America, and you log on to Bank of America and your assets are there. They may provide, Bank of America may also provide you services in terms of a loan or for wealth management or whatever it may be. So they have possession of your assets and they're providing those services. In the future, those services are still going to be provided. However, you get to keep possession of your assets. Okay. So imagine if you go on somewhere and you log on to your account, whatever that may mean by plugging in your hardware wallet or using some sort of login mechanism, and it shows in all of your, your assets. Now, all of those assets are sitting in your possession. You have them, right? But there still could be someone who can review a public ledger, can review your assets and say, hey, here's the here's my recommendation for allocations. Here's this, here's that. And at the end of the day, it's at your own discretion to execute, which may be one transaction or several transactions to a blockchain. So the separation of services and custodianship are being separated right now. Let's take a different use case outside of directly financial uh, institutions in order to make the point. So Let's take something like Facebook. If you have all of your pictures and digital assets, all your movies, everything on your local device, and those are worth, they're worth value to you, but you keep possession of them. Now you can, with permissions on a blockchain, can share what you want to share when you want to share it. And additionally, there can be services uh, that can be provided, chat services or others between you and other peers without ever taking possession of your digital assets. So now you've created a decentralized version of something like Facebook. Similarly, with the bank example I gave, 
your assets would be on your your hardware wallet at your home or on your actual computer rather than at the bank. But both both ways will be providing services. So Total most certainly can provide customer support. Now, we're working on an immutable ledger. So if someone sends assets to the wrong address, there won't be a way for us to recoup those funds. But if someone has trouble figuring out how to connect their hardware wallet or maybe doesn't know something about a coin or wants to know how to make their portfolio more diverse or reduce risk or whatever it may be, we can still provide those services. It's just up to the user to execute and and manage their assets. And it seems like that is fundamentally a pretty radical, although it may not necessarily sound it to people like ourselves who are actually using cryptocurrency and have been involved in the space for a while but for people outside of that that is a radical mindset shift right of like i own all of my my money and if i lose it even through using a service that's on me that can be terrifying to to certain people i personally believe it is a it is a good thing but do you think this is always a question that me and austin jump around quite a bit and discuss is like how do you get like your mum and dad to to feel comfortable with this that that kind of the the generation of people that aren't involved in a lot of this technology to feel okay with that shift of ownership yeah yeah so i would agree with you completely that it's such a fundamental change such a large shift that it's very difficult for people to one, to understand, and then two, once they start to understand it, to accept it as something that's rational. Because, mm-hmm. you know, to them, this is, when I say them, I just mean people who are firstly introduced to this, um, believe that this is an irrational concept. Why would you ever do something like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we're all we're all the guys with the tinfoil hats at some point, right? Yeah. So basically, the way that I've proved this to other people as beneficial is through actually practice. So, Let's say you take a a new wallet and you create a private key, obviously a matching public key. The private key is the hard asset, okay? Mm -hmm. It's the physical asset you need to administrate. If you take that private key and you split it up into five pieces, so you just basically you have a string of letters and numbers and you cut it up into five different pieces and they can only you can only be put to get back together if all five of those pieces are are together in the order that uh, you know they're supposed to be. So mm-hmm. if you take each one of those and you put each one on a different continent around the world in a safety deposit box. It's starting to sound a lot like the, a plot to a Marvel film right uh, now. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's true. It's like you're, you're developing your own political diversification in a sense. You're, mm-hmm. you're diversifying your risk from any central authority, whether it's government or corporate, from coming after your assets. And you should be able to protect them. And there's not really a fear that you should have of losing them so long as that you, you know, I could create 10 copies of that private key and mix and match them around 10 different countries. And then that way, at least I would only need, uh, you know, four of those countries to participate from, you know, whatever it may be, five of them to participate for me to get back my my funds. Now, in the short term, I can have things like a hardware wallet, which in my opinion, they're just disposable. They're disposable. I mean, I, I think that's a crazy concept that they sell those things for $100. They're really... <laughs> They really are. They're disposable items. They've taken a disposable item and they've made it conceptually feel indisposable because of uh, how expensive it is. That's really, you yeah. know, so these electronic access points like hardware wallets will allow you to administrate your funds while they're securely stored. 
Mm -hmm. You know, what's so crazy about this is while Matt and I have typically framed this conversation around adoption as being like, oh, this is such a new concept. How do you even introduce this to people who are so used to the, the old, you know, traditional way of banking? At the same time, I actually think if you jump back like three generations, it's not so foreign of a concept. My grandfather still keeps money under his mattress to keep it away from the government and the bankers. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, there's a lot of very similar risk involved in, in doing that or in, you know, keeping your money in Switzerland so, so that it's not under, you know, like you said, diversifying political and governmental control uh, or, or the, the finalization of a transaction that, that comes with this. Uh, it's the same as physically handing money to somebody, right? So I, I, in a way, it almost feels like uh, an iterative return to, to some of the fundamentals of uh, currency keeping and exchanging. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I haven't had, heard someone phrase it like that. But yeah, if you do jump back, I wonder how many generations it is exactly until, you know, prior to any knowledge of this, of the current solution of sort of, how to call it, uh, cloud storage before there was cloud storage, which is like what our banking system is uh, is based on, um, you know, credit and lending and custodianship. I, I think that this whole idea of having your own assets in your possession becomes disrupted or evolves through blockchain technology because now you can move millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of value while not necessarily needing a third party to say, well, yeah, that's that's there and that's that's right. So that fundamental change right there, which is really what Satoshi, you know, wrote about and what he, you know, preached, is is the that is the change is that you can move around because if I had gold, you know, and I had all this gold and I I wanted I wanted to base this whole thing what I'm doing with gold, sure, you could just do it with gold, but the problem is you can't physically move all of that gold very easily. It creates more yeah. costs. So that I, I completely agree with that analysis that we're going, it does kind of uh, stem back to the origins of the transfer of value. And you mentioned there about requiring a need for a third party. And we, we've touched a little bit on centralized exchanges and the advantages that a lot of major traditional financial institutions have within the current financial system um, and the advantages they gain. One thing that I think has disappointed a number of people, a lot of people within the blockchain and cryptocurrency community has really been that it seems like a lot of the big companies and entities popping up in the blockchain space are kind of like almost replicating the domination <laughs> and control of the traditional banking system and just labeling it now under the guise of blockchain. And I mean, it's in particular, you see that with any of the companies that are involved in, whether it's mining, whether it's uh, centralized exchanges, I think Binance made well, they said that they made $200 million of profit in Q1 and expected to a billion by the end of 2018. You've got Bitmain, who are about to do an IPO and control pretty much the majority of the Bitcoin network. And I, I just, one of the things that I worry about all of this is similar to 
where we came in and we we said, do you know, blockchain's going to tear apart the existing financial services sector and remove the grip and the hold that these huge institutions have and take away from the everyday person. But I feel like now, are, are we stuck with a bigger problem in how, how are these decentralized exchanges going to come into play? And is there even any incentive for the current kind of monolithic businesses that are propping up like Coinbase, who seem to just buy everyone? to actually truly decentralize what they're doing? Yeah, that's great. It's a really, really great uh, question. So yeah, to keep it somewhat short-winded, I, I think that, um, first of all, you just need to go and drink a little more Kool-Aid and then you'll be convinced <laughs> that everything's going to be good. But it, 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 in order to make the point rationally, I think that, I think, yes, I think it will. I think it will be better. And so, you know, there's a few reasons. So you see groups like Coinbase, right? And they're already doing things that are adding to, they're constantly promoting the, the true decentralized nature and the true decentralized companies. One, number two, they're already coming out with products that are going that direction. They just rebranded their wallet, Toshi, to Coinbase wallet. They bought a, a quote unquote decentralized exchange that we talked about earlier in this call. Which I think is a really interesting move. I didn't really know about that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm quite intrigued with that, it almost feels like they're disrupting themselves to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the, but that that's kind of the goal, right? You know, if you don't, if you don't disrupt yourself, someone else will. So, I think that that's that's a key part of it. You know, the main point, though, I think about all of this about that when I hear that question that you asked, which is really, really core to this whole movement, is that the players, right? The players involved today, and this is my personal opinion now. The players involved in the future have this desire for to disrupt these institutions and disrupt these ecosystem that exists in the traditional finance world. So as things become more centralized in the blockchain world, there's a desire by the masses, by the majority of the crowd to decentralize those authorities. So you have you have this group of people that wants decentralization. Sure, there's centralization that occurs it's human nature to, you know, to wield power and to, uh, you know, it's we're, we're in a capitalist environment. So uh, mm -hmm. in, due to capitalism, you're going to see centralization. Combating that is you're going to see new networks and new individuals with new consensus methods coming out in the next 12 to 24 months that it will combat a lot of those issues. And again, the users of the of the big billions of dollars businesses like Coinbase are the ones who are, you know, they're they're early adopters. They're the ones who understand the benefits to a degree of decentralization. They're not going to continuously support Coinbase if they decide to just become a bank. That's my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I think that we also see variations in you know, adoption and, and how people prioritize these things. And I, it'll be interesting to watch this over time as this becomes more mainstream. I wouldn't be surprised if it actually went through a similar arc as the privacy conversation did with people first sort of signing their lives away. Meanwhile, all of the geeks are like, you're giving everything to Facebook, you're crazy. And then all of a sudden it becomes a mainstream scandal and, and everybody cares all of a sudden. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see. So this has been an excellent conversation. David, and I'm sure that so many of our, our listeners are going to want to follow up with you and, and uh, learn about Total and everything that you all are doing there. So where is the best place for our listeners to find you and see Total in action? 
Yeah. First of all, I appreciate that. And I, I would love to hear from every single one of your listeners personally. And I would recommend going to uh, total.com. So that's T-O-T-L-E.com. And from there, you can navigate to our uh, social media channels. I'm active on our Telegram channel. And there's a link directly to the Telegram channel from the website. There's a link to our beta application on the website. Our medium is a constant source of education and updates on our products. Uh, Jordan, our head of product, is also active in the Telegram and a chat system right on the website. And our head of marketing, Alex, is also available for any marketing inquiries, alex at total.com. So I think that that's enough resources there. And like I said, would love to hear it from each one of your listeners and let us know uh, your thoughts on our platform and any ways we can improve the decentralized trading experience for you guys. Yeah, that's that's awesome, David. And I'll make sure that we share out all of the links that you mentioned there in the show notes and you'll be able to find them on the website. So thanks again, David. This has been a really, really interesting topic. And uh, I, I kind of speak for Austin as well here in saying that we're both really interested to see and observe your path and how the total platform progresses over the, the coming months and years. I appreciate you taking the time and having me on. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and want to show your appreciation to myself and Matt, make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on the CastBox app or your favorite podcasting platform. We'd really appreciate that. And if you haven't already, you can download the free CastBox app where you'll find us as one of the CastBox original shows. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing, and you can follow us on Twitter at the coin offering. Finally, you can ask us any questions you have by emailing us at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. The Decrypting Crypto Podcast is a Castbox original show, and its contents should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.